1: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. In 2004, Dr. Jennifer L. Morgan's Laboring Women, Reproduction, and Gender in New World Slavery was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Sixteen years later, Morgan's Laboring Women stands tall as one of the most important historical texts in the history of the Academy. No cap. Building on Dr. Deborah Gray White's literal field building and seminal 1985 monograph, Aren't I a Woman? Female Slaves in the Plantation South, laboring women clearly added to White's tradition, but also helped blaze a trail in her own right. Laboring women was the first historical text to focus on Black women's reproductive labor under New World slavery during the early modern period laboring women is also critically important to scholarly understandings about African and African-American history, reproduction, gender, sexuality, capitalism, the Black Atlantic, and more. To say the least, since 2004, the game wasn't the same anymore. Learn why by listening to The Conversation. Enjoy New Books and African-American Studies listeners. Welcome to the podcast Dr. Morgan how are you doing today?
0: I'm fine Adam thank you so much for having me.
1: And thank you so much for coming on as you know as we talked offline and and in other venues I've been you know I've been trying to get you know this this amazing interview going for for a little while and so it's perfect timing you know second half of 2020 so you know, I think go. this is going to be a good yeah I think this is going to be a good discussion.
0: There you go. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Outstanding. So before we begin discussing, you know, laboring women, mm-hmm. I want to briefly discuss first your graduate school experience at Duke University, mm-hmm. considering the wealth of historians and professors you interacted with and were taught by, you know, like, like, your, like your comrade, Dr. Vince Brown, mm-hmm. Stephanie Smallwood, Julia Scott, Peter Wood, John Ho Franklin, and more and more and more. Mm -hmm. What made Duke's History Department during your tenure so vibrant? Mm. I
0: am not entirely sure what made it happen that we were all there at the same time. But the fact that we were all there at the same time was hugely important. And I'm just going to add a few other names. Uh, Matthew Countryman, Herman Bennett, Celia Naylor, Alex Byrd, Chuck McKinney, Lisa Waller. Um, There were... So many amazing, young, budding historians of color who were in that department at that time. And of course, there was this incredibly strong uh, presence of uh, social historians, um, Kirsten Fisher, Christina Green, Tim Tyson, Nick Biddle, um, all of whom had been drawn to the department, I think, because of a commitment to a kind of progressive uh, revisionist history. Framework right that was led by uh, Peter Wood, by um, uh, by Bill Chafe, um, as well as Julius Scott and Barry Gaspar and John Hope Franklin and others. So I think that it was there was this incredible energy in the department um, in the second half of the nineteen eighties and the first half of the nineteen nineties that really um, propelled us. It 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 made it feel. It, it made it feel like the work that we were doing was not brave. You know what I mean? Because there were so many of us who were doing it. Of course, it was quite brave. We were, we were um, trying to dismantle some pretty massive historiographical assumptions, um, but it felt like just the regular thing to do at the time.
1: Mm. Yeah. And so did you think, right, once again, looking back, Um, on your Duke experience Mm -hmm. did you think that you and many of your colleagues would be where you all are today like what was what was that just like you know going social history right what was the social history right in like the the classes and such like you know that that's something that I I think is just fascinating yeah
0: I mean no of course not like I I think we all just sort of hoped we would get a job you know (laughs) And it's hard to look too much further into the future at that time. Um, it, it it felt. I often I often think that you know, as I just said, there are a number of sort of. Um, uh, like alchemies that were going on the fact that there were so many um african-american students who were in the department at the time uh the fact that there you know the other person um who were who was there and the other cohort were folks in the english department and comp lit and you know Henry Louis Gates was there for a few years while I was there. I did a I did a field with him. Faith Smith, who's an amazing scholar of the Caribbean um, and of Caribbean literature, was there. There was a there was an interdisciplinarity as well that was circulating. Uh, Matthew Countryman and I founded the Hurston James Society while we were there, uh, which is an interdisciplinary organization for graduate students of color that is still up and running, um, and that created an intellectual home for the work that we were doing. Um, And so when I look around, well, actually, like when I teach uh, at the graduate level, certainly um, sort of books on Atlantic slavery, I I find myself having to say over and over again, like, I'm not just teaching these books, because I know these guys, you know, (laughs) like, actually, this field that I'm associated with it, Stephanie Smallwood is associated with it, Vince Brown and um, Herman Bennett and others who work in the early Black Atlantic are associated with this. This is, is really um, dominated, I would say, or at least maybe dominated is too strong a word. But those of us who came out of that Duke history department, who had the opportunity to work with Julia Scott and Peter Wood and Barry Gaspar, we have had a significant impact on the shape of the field that I don't think any of us anticipated.
1: And that's exactly actually why I decided to ask that question because I was like, I was just kind of like going through the names. I was like, goodness gracious, a lot. That's a that's a that's a significant portion. And also uh, considering the kinds of scholars. Right. Also, right. Like you said the interdisciplinarity of it, right? Mm-hmm. Last night mm-hmm. I was watching, um, as many of us were, the the Slavery Archive um, mm-hmm. book club, right? With, mm-hmm. with, with Vince's mm-hmm. book, you know, shout out to uh, Dr. Ruju and, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnson as well for that. And so, right, that's exactly what he's talking about, the interdisciplinarity yeah. of yeah. cartography and geography, yeah. right, all these different, you know, spaces. And so mm-hmm. that, that's actually a great primer to get us into, right, the the crux of why we're here today. Mm-hmm. laboring women reproduction and gender in new world slavery right 16 years ago <laughs> goodness gracious alive right such such a such a lush text that oh, really you. changed not only african-american history gender history and the history of sexuality among many others right et cetera. Et cetera. Mm-hmm. yet as you move toward the publication of laboring women the profession was not where it is today in regards to the Mm -hmm. wealth of texts on black women and slavery. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, of course, Mm -hmm. was there, you know, can you describe any pushback your work received on the way to its publication? Because I think there Mm -hmm. are a lot of folks that would love to learn about your actual experience going from grad school into this particular text in
0: Mm -hmm. 2004. Mm -hmm. Um. It, that's a, it's a really good question, and it's hard. It's a little hard to answer because I was a very um, cautious, let's just say, uh, assistant professor. So, um, I, I, uh, I had to get. <sighs> it was clear to me from the beginning, um, as I was on the job market for the first time around, um, and I had applied for various postdocs that early Americanists didn't really see me as doing classic early American history, right? Um, and uh, in fact, I had an opportunity um, to get some feedback from the current, uh, the person who was the, uh, Ron Hoffman, who was the head of the um, Omahundra Institute at the time. And he he said to me, you know, I think there's enormous potential in this work, but you, you're not you're not really dealing with the colonial um, historiography well enough. And I, and I, you know, I was like, okay, I get it. Um, that wasn't pushback. That was, I just want to be really clear. He was, he was uh, intending that to be supportive. Um, and, and as, as my career unfolded, so I ended up in a postdoctoral uh, uh Fellowship at the University of Maryland, College Park, with Professor Ira Berlin, um, and I think that Ira too had a. He understood the project as being primarily African American, right? Ron Hoffman understood the project as having aspirations to be what was then called colonial American. Um, other people saw the project as being primarily about the history of of black women, and what that meant is that everybody felt like I hadn't quite met the bar right? For the, the, for their, for the, for the place that they were locating the work. Um, And so Mm -hmm. that was a little, that was stressful for me. And it meant that I held the manuscript close to my chest for perhaps longer than I should have. Um, So that once I got to the point where I was, uh, where I needed it to, to, you know, I've been revising and, you know, presenting it at all sorts of different places in order to like fully understand what it meant to be straddling these at least three different disciplines or th- three different specialties in the history of, in 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 the hist- in the context of being a historian. Um, I I'm enormously and forever grateful to Bob Lockhart at uh, University of Pennsylvania Press, who was a relatively new editor there and who really. Just was incredibly enthusiastic about the project, and once I fin- once I finally let him have it, um, he he ushered it through with incredible um, focus and speed, and got that book published as fast as I needed it to. Kathy Brown, also who is the series editor, were they were both enormously supportive of the project. Um, so I wouldn't say that I I had pushback in a, in a kind of hostile way. I think it was more that everybody who I encountered was just concerned that I hadn't adequately done the work to situate it in the place that they thought it sat. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's always interesting just right when you, you know, if you want to say straddled, you know, these Mm -hmm. different disciplinary uh, spaces, right. Mm -hmm. The question of, where does your work fit and where Mm -hmm. does it not? And it's like, and especially, right. You know, there's a, there's a particular way that professionalization works too, Mm -hmm. which, Mm -hmm. right. Are you connected to these people who are in these different. So, so it's Mm -hmm. just um, very great to, 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 really learn, right. Mm -hmm. About, you know, the different um, the different hands, I guess, that were right. That, that were, touching your your work but at the Mm -hmm. end of the day you still right it was still close to your chest right
0: yes yes and i and i think if i can just add one more thing i think that you know it's not insignificant that my um so my so my first job was at Rutgers University. I was I was jointly appointed in Women and Gender Studies and in the History Department. My tenure it was like fifty one forty nine. So my tenure was in oh history, gosh. but the but it was a pretty you know even split. Um, and then when I came to NYU, um, I'm also jointly appointed in an interdisciplinary department and in the History Department. And I think that's in part because I've not been fully it's not that I'm not legible. It's that the work, because it sits in a bunch of different places in history departments, it actually makes it hard for me to be fully invested in, invested in a history department. So that my interdisciplinary appointments have been hugely important in terms of expanding. I mean, like the the... Being at Rutgers Women's and Gender Studies with some amazing feminist scholars and uh, geographers and theorists and, and, and political scientists, et cetera, like that really, you know, I think you can see the influence of that work in of that location in what the published book became. Um, and, uh, I think that continues to be the case in my work. I am a historian. I'm an early Americanist historian, a, a, a comparative slavery scholar who works in the 17th and the 18th century. I don't ever, you know, that's like, that's like the fundamental place of my identity, but intellectually the work is always in conversation, um, with cultural theorists, with critical race scholars, with feminist theorists. And that is, um, I think very important for me.
1: And since we're, you know, we're still in the weeds of of Duke here. Mm -hmm. um, Well, since we already, you know, discussed Duke um, and and some of the spaces that you um, had your work in, rather, um, Mm -hmm. can, uh, you know, outside of the ones that you already described, Mm -hmm. can you please describe any other intellectual communities which also helped to to bring laboring women to to us today? Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, (sighs) I, it's, it's hard. I think you're, so I feel like you're asking me about kind of professional spaces. And I, I certainly, I started as a, as a postdoc, I started going to the Berkshire conference in the history of women. Um, that was a very important professional space for me. Um, again, a place where my, my work as, um, as a, as somebody who like as a gender scholar was really um, supported and, and elaborated. Um, the most important thing though for me as a as an assistant professor was the community of um of black women scholars, historians and others um that circulated around Deborah Gray White at Rutgers University. So she, you know, she convened us in many ways, <laughs> literally and intellectually. Um, she's enormously important uh in terms of uh of 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 connecting me to other historians who work on afro-american women's history maybe not in the colonial period but later um, and and who uh who helped me again to kind of situate and navigate the project um in the context of of that field so uh deborah gray white was enormously important uh to the development of this project and to my frankly to my um success as a scholar
1: amen amen yeah. i was i was in uh i was in a uh <laughs> i was in a grass seminar <laughs> with her uh last uh, last year and uh yeah know. yeah there yeah I, I already know i already know <laughs> <laughs> lord of mercy uh, and, I, and i'm still i'm still standing you know what i'm saying mm-hmm, I do. <laughs> it's, oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> All, we're, we're dipping in the weeds of the meadow right now right? There you go. Um, there you go. and so you know like you've posited uh throughout the interview so far your work is inherently d- interdisciplinary and yeah. has impacted a tremendous number of fields in the last 16 years why do you asking the scholar who wrote laboring women why do you think laboring women's been so widely adopted right and and let me just say you're a rock star out here in these streets you know that right <laughs> right why do why do you think people are you know have so widely adopted uh, mm-hmm. uh, the text and you know really loved it right even before i knew who you actually as a person were Mm -hmm. uh i knew about the book right
0: well first of all thank you it's hard for me to you know convey my uh my blushing or my embarrassment over over a podcast (laughs) but thank you um i i'm gonna i'm gonna answer that question in two parts one is the self-deprecating part and i can't help But and I I can't help but do this, but it's also I think true. Um, When I first published Laboring Women, uh, you know, at the at the moment when it's at the press and you're like doing the final things, I became quite consumed with anxiety that like the title was wrong because somebody had used that title before right and like in my head that's what i thought so i started Mm -hmm. just going back over the like every article that was published on the history of women in slavery every book blah 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 and and you you'll see in the in the um it's either in the introduction or the conclusion of the book i can't remember i talk about like the sudden recognition that in fact um you know deborah gray white's And I, a woman, had been published almost twenty years to the to the moment that my book was published, and that there wasn't a full length monograph on African American enslaved African American women in North America that was published in that twenty year period. In other words, there was this huge vacuum. Um, There were a lot of books on Afro American women's history uh, that started with a chapter on slavery. There were a few books on uh, women who are enslaved in the Caribbean, Hillary Beckles' work, um, uh, Marietta Morrissey, others whose whose work was I, I had access to, but there really was this. It, it was a it was a strange feeling because I think everyone was like, "Oh, sure, you're writing on slavery, women and slavery," like like as if that was a as if there was a lot of people doing that, but at the, but actually there weren't. Um, and so part of the reason why I think the book was taken up as much as it was at least at the beginning was because it really there weren't other studies and um there was mine and then there was uh, stephanie camp's closer to freedom which was published the same year we our books came out the same year and that was it so you had my book which was on the, the colonial period and stephanie's which was you know more antebellum and so together those two you know they filled a gap really just s- simply a space that was desperately needed to be filled um so that's the self-deprecating answer, right? There was this, there was, there was okay. a need for this work. I think, I think I also benefited from, I mean, I think the interdisciplinarity, my, um, my, my strategy, you know, I was dealing with, a, I was dealing with a very problematic archive before we had quite that language to talk about the problem of the archive and the violence of the archive. Um, but I was trying to, like, i I was tr- I, I was trying to articulate how um, challenging it was to write this history in a way that didn't say I can't do it. I was saying like I can do it, but you have to bear with me. You have to see that this archive is really. Um, trying to strangle these women's voices and that my effort to write them back into history is really a hard job. Um, and I think that that is something that many, many, many other people have taken up at this point and that I wasn't the only one who was contributing to that, um, methodological conversation, but the work also like landed in that space at a, at an opportune moment. Um, So yeah, I think there's a little bit of timing. I mean, I, you know, I worked really hard to try to make it well written and well researched. And I, I take, um, I take pride in what I produced. But I think it was also a little bit of, 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 of where the historical profession was, where teaching was, where the demand for um, history of slavery and, afro-american women's history was in undergraduate classrooms and all of those things contributed to to give it um, a much wider audience than i originally anticipated
1: and lord knows you you you're definitely hit it out the park the writing is exquisite right so exquisite that i actually have to ask you specifically about that right Mm -hmm. so as a graduate student, right, this is also great for me and all of my other friends who are in, you know, comp uh, preparations, right, for the fall. And so you're providing us so, so much. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Um, but then also just just thinking about uh, my favorite historians, writing, research and editing process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for laboring women and you can also speak as well, if you'd like, about the difference, right. 16 years later, right, between Mm -hmm. your processes, how these things have Mm -hmm. obviously changed, Mm -hmm. probably. But for laboring women, right, what was your process and, right, as in terms of research and writing and editing? Can can you describe those those processes for us? Sure.
0: So I was very lucky as a graduate student in that I, um, when I finished my comps, um, I had two fellowships uh that to support the research, which meant that I basically left Durham um for twenty two months of research, right? It was almost two full years that I was able to spend in archives in um in London, at Oxford, um in Jamaica, in Barbados, uh in South Carolina, both in uh Charleston and in Columbia. So I had I had generous support from the Fulbright Hayes and the um and someone else, which I, <laughs> I just fell right <laughs> out of my head. I'll circle back. So I had generous uh research support. Um but what that also meant is that I I didn't I didn't write very much at all while I was it was a it was a it was a process, right? So I was in the archive for all that time just, you know, because I hate to say it to age myself this way, but I didn't have a laptop. Like I, I, I took all of the notes for this book with a pencil and a pad of paper, um, and you know, keeping various like index cards of what I was finding. And um, uh, Julius Scott told me when I left for the archive to keep a small notebook. I've told this story many times, but to keep a small notebook with that was titled "Things I Don't Understand," right? And he said, "Don't, don't follow every." Point of confusion, like if you're reading something and you don't know what they're referring to, just write it down and come back to it later because you'll figure out if you if it's important for you to know that or not. Um, and so one of the things that uh, found its way into that notebook of things I don't understand were the descriptions of African women's bodies. Uh, it was the hanging breasts and the and and how that kept coming back up i that was not part of the dissertation prospectus a chapter on racial ideology at all um but it kept coming up and so at a certain point i was able to go back and and rethink that and and do some secondary research to to flesh out my questions about it um But anyway, it meant that I had a, the research process and the writing process were really quite distinct, which I think is less common for a graduate student of your generation, where you have access to digital archives, even before COVID, right? That you could do a little research and a little writing, a little research and a little writing. I didn't, I came back with like notebooks, 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 and then I started to write. Okay. Um, and I, I had a pretty kind of rudimentary chronology like approach to writing the dissertation and I just tried to get my evidence down on the page I had some very uh, very simple like computer help of of coding the wills that I had read and I mean I you would you would laugh out loud to see the printouts of my of my will data for example or the deeds because <laughs> was so it was like like imagine someone writing in crayon you know what i mean like in terms of the computer like assistance that we have now right um But it did mean that the research and the writing were distinct processes. And then that the revising was the place where I was really focusing on the writing. I do not think of myself as a natural writer or as even a particularly good writer. I feel like I have to go through a number of drafts. And so my strategy is to just get something like Dirty on the page, and then to clean it up, and to go over it and over it and over again. I go through many, many drafts of rewriting. Um, I, I don't. I know there are some people who kind of craft a sentence or a paragraph almost in their head before they put it down on paper, and it and and maybe it comes out crisper at the first go round. But it, the writing is a process for me of figuring out what it is that I'm trying to say. And actually, Julius Scott made me know that because he once said to me, Jennifer, sometimes when I read a sentence like this, I know that you don't even know what you're talking about yet. And I was like, oh, God, you're right. Well,
1: all
0: <laughs> and so then I was like, OK, I don't know what I mean yet. Like, And then I will sit with the sentence and figure it out until I feel that I know what I mean. <laughs> so, you, so you have two. Well- Julius- to thank you, have Julius to thank for my ability to comprehend a complicated point.
1: <laughs> there we go, The and, and the accolades uh, continue <laughs> for, for, for Julius Scott.
0: There you go, there you go.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and also right. So, so so that was your time during uh the time that you were writing. They bring yeah. women, and, and so and so how has anything changed right not only just obviously with computing but just Mm -hmm. your yourself as a as a writer yeah and, and and all the different things that you're doing
0: yeah i mean one of the things is that i've had to learn to write in um shorter chunks of time you know as you're so the second project has been fairly long in coming and that's in part because of other you know i i i spend a lot of time um on teaching and mentoring my students, but I also, I was the director of graduate studies for a number of years. I've been the chair of my department for a number of years. And so those administrative responsibilities and once you get tenure, um, you you suddenly, there's a lot of good that comes with that, but it also means you're suddenly eligible to serve on a lot of other committees. So um, I really had to learn. The second project has been a much more um, fragmented process where I take a little chunk of something, a little chunk of evidence, a little chunk of an idea and write it through and then set it aside. And then come back to it a little bit later. So it feels a little. So the final editorial, not editorial, the final editing processes has been process has been a much more um, like oh, I I said this already in this part. I don't need to say it again because I do. You see what I mean? Like it wasn't linear. Mm-hmm. The, the writing wasn't linear, um, and that's been challenging. Um, but I I feel I feel good about, it. and I I also do feel like as I you know as I get older and more clear about what I'm trying to say, I don't need to rewrite so many times. So that's been nice. Like I've, I feel like I've streamlined that process. Um, but I, I look forward to, I don't, I really don't want to say I look forward to my third project. I I look forward to whatever I produce next being a little more contained. Do you know what I mean? To being Mm -hmm. able to carve out a little, uh, kind of, time um to focus on larger on larger parts of it i guess Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and with that too right to to pivot Turning back to mm-hmm. to laboring women, um, mm-hmm. you you had mentioned before you're twenty two months. I just have to compute that in my mind for a second. Twenty two months, okay, right? Yeah. So yeah. twenty two months going between right Oxford so probably the Bodleian, and then mm-hmm. going you know to to the Caribbean and going mm-hmm. to my family's you know loving state of South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. So c- can you describe a little bit more in depth, right? Just what does that actual movement experience right just just mm. just that part because right and, and i and I, I know a lot of students now are thinking about this in terms of the research that they can't do right yeah. right so so yeah. the, the the 22 months right from starting mm-hmm. now obviously is not going to happen yeah, but just exactly. the general nature of the mm-hmm. archival experience on mm-hmm. the road and also mm-hmm. what were the experiences like within the physical archives themselves okay
0: so I the first thing that comes to mind is isolation and loneliness right because I I would spend so I was in London for seven months, um, and I was go that while while I was in London for the first chunk of time, I was at the at the British Library, at the Public Record Office. I would do day trips to Oxford, to the Bodleian, um, Lambeth Palace, right. So I was in a bunch of different archives. Then I left. I was two months in Jamaica. Then I uh, was you know six months in in Barbados. Then back to London. Then. Back to then to South Carolina, right? So, there were it, so each of those chunks of time were kind of so short that I mean, they weren't, I, they were short enough to mean that I didn't make like deep connections to people at any of those places. I was, I was constantly like the stranger in the room. Um, and that, you know, I did make some lovely friendships while I was doing my research, but they were few because I was mostly alone. And that, that was, you know, more than a notion, right? I, I spent a lot of time, like, of course, this is, you know, you're a graduate student, you, 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 you have to live so far away from wherever. The, I spent hours on the London tube, just back and forth and back and forth from Kew from Gardens to where I was uh, living in northern and North, uh, east London. Um, I, I taught myself Portuguese. With a Walkman and headphones, because I had to take a Portuguese language exam when I got back to Duke to pass my second language requirement. Um, you know what I mean? Like I, I wow. just spent an enormous amount of time by myself, um, and I think that is both really productive and it's also a little sad. You know, it, it makes you feel uh, it's it's hard. And I and I I remember also in at the at the public record office, which is now the National Archive in England, I kept on seeing other graduate students who who were from London, who were like University of London graduate students who I'd met, who I'd seen at like a, you know, a talk or at the coffee, you know, the tea room or whatever. And um, I was so cold shouldered by them, it did not look the part, I want to say, um, that mm. I I felt, I mean, like I felt shunned and excluded. And I have a lovely story. I don't know if you know um, the brilliant, in fact, uh, MacArthur prize winning historian Eve Trout Powell, who's now mm. at University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I saw Eve on, this, on the tube heading to the public record office for like two weeks. I kept on seeing her and I thought, that woman is not English. I know she's an American. And so I actually <laughs> kind of semi-stalked her. I like watched as she left once and I left at the same time so that we would hit the the um, lockers at the same time. And she said, hi. And I said, hi. And we started talking. Turns out our our parents lived in buildings that share a wall in New York City and our brothers went to the same high school. And we've been friends ever since. And, it, and she laughs so much about that because she, I was like, Desperate to talk to another woman of color, and desperate to talk to an American because I was—I felt so isolated in at the public record office. And um, we actually, you know, spent a a couple of weeks then overlapped in London, and um, continue to find each other whenever we can. You know what I mean? But it was just—it was isolating. That's a—that's a very long way of saying it was isolating. And in some ways, I think the isolation was good for the project. You know, like I just I went to the archive during the day. I read secondary literature in the evening. I watched a little bit of television and went to, you know, hear some music and made a friend or two. But I didn't I didn't get distracted. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I was first of all, very, I wasn't very happy.
1: <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. No, like that story is really like. Super duper interesting, and and it goes to the question about um, what it means to do the work, and um, going back to Dr. White, one of the things mm-hmm. that she told me was uh, and t- told the seminar class, but you have to get used to the loneliness, and I think that yeah. for me has been the hardest. Right, thinking yeah. about all the things I've done so far is just being okay, wading into the waters of the loneliness and. It's in trying not to like, you know, uh, uh, catch despair or, you know, mm-hmm. get, you mm-hmm. know, and, and which, which obviously is, you know, easier said than done. But yeah. um, once you kind of realize like this is, this is what it is, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this is how the work gets done, you know, yeah. hopefully it makes, at least for me, it's made things a little uh, bit easier. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and yeah.
0: No, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, finish your.
1: Thought. No, 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 you, no, okay. you, no, I'm. It's it's your oral history. I'm, I'm interviewing you. <laughs>
0: okay, okay. So what I was going to say is, I think in some ways, um, the the isolation of being a historian or of being, you know, I, I don't think it's just those of us who work in physical archives. I think there's a lot, you know, being a scholar is a, is about giving yourself time to think through difficult problems in your own head. You know, like there's always the moment where you read you, you're in conversation, but you have to start from a place where you've done the work that done some very um, singular and isolating work. Right. But by the same token, I would say that I think there's something about being a scholar of color, being an African-American woman um, that keeps you, it's like you all you go into it feeling isolated right so then in some ways you're like open to connections when you do find them do you see what i'm saying and it makes those mm-hmm. connections with your with your peers and i don't mean only other black scholars although obviously that's been hugely important for me um but it does make those moments of connection, like you don't let them slip through your fingers. I was not going to let Eve Trout Powell get away from me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I was like, Oh no, girl, I see you. And like, you've got to talk to me because I'm losing my mind over here. You know what I'm saying? And so like, I think that that, that there's a way in which the, the isolation and the loneliness is balanced by these really enduring connections. Like the fact that, The fact that there are people in this profession who I have known and been in conversation with for, you know, like 30 years now, it's, it's, um, that's, that's a gift. That's a real gift, I would say.
1: Definitely, it definitely mm-hmm. is, and and actually, your story connects to one. Um, I interviewed uh, Dr. Erica Edwards for her new mm-hmm. book, uh, "Hiding mm-hmm. in Plain Sight" on, on, on Black women in, in uh, Argentina, and mm-hmm. she actually mentioned a similar experience that she actually had in Argentina, seeing mm-hmm. right other people who she was like. I feel like you're. I feel like we're we're connected here, right? Exactly. And, and so, <laughs> right, and so, and so, those kinds of. Those are sometimes the best uh, uh connections, right, and, and friendships that you can build in life because mm-hmm. they come at a at a time where, like you're saying before, right, isolated in particular ways, but yeah. that opens you up in a particular way, as as you mentioned before. Um, and, and, and it also connects, there's been a, uh, Dr. Ashley Farmer wrote this piece for uh, Black Perspectives, right? Uh, um, Archiving While Black, right? Which, you know, brings up John Hope Franklin's uh, uh, discussions mm-hmm. in Duke and such. And so I think there's an interesting... Moment that we have, right? We're talking about, you know, obviously it's a historical um, mm-hmm. conversation as well, but you know, just for the time frame that which we're living today, I think it's just a very interesting one where uh, these things are, you know, the, these "quote unquote" some issues, right, um, mm-hmm. are still happening. Yet yeah. the great part is we're still able to connect when yes. when we when we can.
0: Yes. And, and also I think the other thing that we have now it are more of these spaces like Asala, like the African-American Intellectual History Society, like there are these places like Aswad um, that are formalized spaces to, to kind of create um, possibilities for those connections. And those, those are, you know, they happen alongside the, the, the OI conferences or the, Berkshire Conference or the, you know, AHA or OAH or the Southern, right? Like that. there's, there, it is important to gather. It is really important to gather and it, but it's also important to, um, to find time to be in, you know, real conversation with our, with your peers with like this, uh, uh, with understanding all the layers that I mean behind the word peer, you know? hmm
1: uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, yeah. I have another important question for you that mm-hmm. actually connects to your final, um, not, not final, but mm-hmm. a couple minutes ago, you had mentioned before um, about your publication date being in 2004, which is mm-hmm. the same year that the late uh, Dr. Stephanie camps yeah. closer to freedom Enslaved yeah. slave women and everyday yeah. resistance, resistance in the plantation South came out. Right. And so, um, before we get to her, I'd like mm-hmm. to talk to you a bit more about just debates, right? You know, I'm, I'm reading for comps, mm-hmm. right? So it's all about debates, mm-hmm. debates, debates. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so can you talk to us a bit about, right, because your final chapter uh, is gender and the changing nature of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so looking back, right, looking forward, l- can we talk a bit about the limits mm-hmm. of enslaved People's and not only enslaved people, enslaved women's resistance to slavery. Mm -hmm. And also, where are we historiographically in the resistance slash agency Agency. debate? Yeah.
0: Well, obviously, we can't even have the conversation about agency without talking about Walter Johnson's sort of brilliant placeholder in that conversation to say, like, what does it mean to make build an argument about human beings based on me proving to you that they have agency this is this is this is deeply problematic like the starting point is that enslaved africans were human beings who were caught in an impossible situation and in order to survive it they had to figure out how to assess risk and possibility and safety and compliance and resistance right like you that's that's the starting point so i i and i feel like we've gotten much further along in that and i think that we owe an enormous debt um if i may be so bold to scholars like myself but and like stephanie camp to say like if we put if we center african women or and women of african descent experience of enslavement if we center that then we're forced to think about a broader way of understanding negotiating space right Because we are forced to think critically and immediately about intimacy, because we're forced to think critically and immediately about what reproductive capacity and the experience of like bodily vulnerability does to how we think about race and how we think about enslavement. Um, And it means that the, that the, you know, Stephanie Camp's brilliant um, sort of illumination of the problem of the slaves three bodies right that is not something that is just limited to the history of african women or women of african descent this is an insight into how the multiple ways that people experience and navigate oppressive forces that are being mobilized against them but i think it's not um an accident that the person who brings us to that is somebody who is attentive to gender power race etc all under the context of enslavement i don't know if that um, is clear. And, and I think, so where we are historiographically is that um, I don't think you can write about the history of, um, to use Cedric Robinson's term, the history of the black radical tradition. You can't write that history without writing about the history of African women and women of African descent. And so therefore we're understanding more capaciously what resistance means and how people... Um, carved out spaces for autonomy in the context of hereditary racial slavery and what the costs and the consequences were of their efforts to find those spaces of autonomy. Um, and I think we owe an ongoing debt to the new scholarship that's being produced on uh, the history of enslaved women, the history of, of gender and slavery broadly, and the history of slavery and sexuality. So so that's that's where I think we are
1: absolutely absolutely and I uh, got gotta shout out my uh my my professor you know shout out to dr mm-hmm. uh Dr Fuentes I know I know you're listening mm-hmm. I'll send it to you mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> right because, because I will say absolutely. I am someone who listens like I like I literally was just like just washing dishes and listening to the, to the slavery archive book club last night. Mm-hmm. And I listened mm-hmm. to just mm-hmm. a lot, just passively. And, and, um, mm-hmm. and so I listened to even your, uh, I think you, you were in conversation with Dr. Fuentes for dispossessed lives at the Schaumburg. Yeah, at the
0: Schaumburg. Yes. And, yeah.
1: and, and I, and I've, I've returned to that one uh, uh, multiple times. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, if there's someone out there that's right in the last, what, five years, who's written, you know, a, a, an amazing uh, tome about the question of agency you know we gotta Absolutely. also shout out you know gotta shout out Absolutely. her and Absolutely. so and of course, yeah.
0: if I can interrupt I think that one of yeah. the most um, so Fuentes's work which is which is I mean, I think that I think that dispossessed lives like embodies that kind of the productive and generative tension of interdisciplinarity that I was just sort of beginning to understand. Um, the way that she her attention to language, her her clear and 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 deeply um, sophisticated uh, engagement with the problem of the archive, and the way that power is um, is uh, condenses in the archive as well as in the experience of being enslaved. Um, I think is just exemplary and beautifully rendered and deeply deeply uh uh painful (laughs) to read um uh but i think that she's doing she's doing that work in in the most remarkable
1: way really absolutely and so so you know obviously we're talking about resistance here and Mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about dr camp so for those who do not know Mm -hmm. who dr camp was can, can you tell us a bit about her so for the listening audience who who might not be aware who of who this amazing person uh, yeah. uh was
0: so i i mean it's funny i can tell you a little bit about her she and i uh met when we were both um oh i i she was finishing at the university of pennsylvania and i had the postdoc at college park we had mutual friends and so we we met during that time of like just having finished or almost finishing a dissertation. Um, I think that we were both, um, you know, we both benefited tremendously from being in like a community of scholars and students who were taking seriously, um, the question of, of, of writing the history of slavery in a new way. Um, and I think that, uh, she was an incredibly, gifted scholar. And, uh, you know, just, I think that, I think that closer to freedom is, it's such a, it's a surprising book because it's slim, you know, it's not like a big fat thwonking book. Um, but it Mm -hmm. packs, there's so much careful, uh, archival research in that book. And for those people who don't know, um, you know, Stephanie camp passed away, uh, so, so too young. Um, uh, oh my goodness! What was it like five years ago now? Uh, yeah. And and the loss. I, I you know she was beginning a second project on beauty, race, and beauty um, that I had the pleasure of uh, of, of of editing um, in a collection that that I uh, pulled together with with Jennifer Breyer and um, God, Adam, you've got me so wrapped up in memories and I can't even remember my, hold on, just give me. And so let me start again. So I had the pleasure of working with Stephanie, um, at the beginning of her second project, which was on black beauty. Uh, and that, that essay was, um, published in a collection that I edited with Jenny Breyer, um, and Jim Downs, uh, called connections. Um, and I, she just, you know, she was a, she was a wonderful, brilliant, thoughtful scholar who was really attentive to some of the same questions that, uh, that were important to me about how do we think about, about the history of slavery? How do we think about race as a construct? How do we think about uh, women's lives, particularly enslaved women's lives, and how those lives are um, both shaped by slavery, but also shape the institution of slavery? Um, so her, her passing is a huge loss that many of us are still actively feeling.
1: Mm. Yeah. And, and I remember, uh, I was in a comparative slavery class in 2017 in my master's Mm -hmm. program. And that Mm -hmm. was the first time I ever heard, um, her name. It was a class Mm -hmm. from, uh, I was at Simmons university taught Mm. by Dr. Jessica Parr and, Mm -hmm. So, so that was the first instance. And so I guess that would have been two or three years after her uh, passing. And, you know, so, so I, you know, I hadn't, I didn't end up reading Closer to Freedom until Mm -hmm. uh, uh, probably a couple years later. But after I read Mm -hmm. it, I was like, right, damn. Like yeah, I don't yeah. I don't care about books being like four or five hundred pages because that yeah. that that can say something else about. It. But uh, if you can just just pack in so much in, mm-hmm. I don't even know it, it it's it's a short book relative, but yeah, um, yeah. It, it's just one where you're just the whole book is a highlight, right?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: exactly, and, and and so um and, 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 so, it's and a, so and so and yeah. 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 And, and honestly, I don't like honestly reading books multiple times usually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but I've read yours, I think now two or three times and, and closer mm-hmm. to freedom, uh, you know, around two times now. And so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's just remarkable to see the kind of impact that someone can have on so many people. And I never had a chance to even meet them. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, exactly. um, yeah, and so and so, thank you for 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 talk talking to us about who Dr. Camp uh, uh, was, and I, and I would say still is because her spirit lives on through Absolutely. the work, right, and, and and us yeah. engaging with her. Um, mm-hmm. And so to to pivot a little bit, um, I know historians are not supposed to look into the future, but <laughs> let's break the rules for a moment. <laughs> okay. um, in regards to African American women's history. Uh, specifically and histories of slavery in general, what direction are we headed in? What trends mm. do you see that might be momentary and or lasting? Mm.
0: I think that, um, so I, I do think that there is an intersection between the history of slavery and the history of medicine and the body um, that, originates maybe when in the kind of questions that I was asking about reproduction, but that has, that have, you know, so we see Sasha Turner's work obviously um, and other uh, historians who've taken up the question of reproduction and slavery particularly. Um, but I, I know that um, I, I know that those questions about like the corporeal experience of enslavement have expanded uh, to be questions that are really about the history of knowledge production right and how do we understand for example the history of um, i have a, a student elise mitchell who's working on um, the history of smallpox and slavery like how do we understand the connection between slavery the slave trade and the history of science, the history of medicine. Jim Downs is also working on projects that that engage this question. Um, I think that that's an enormously fruitful place because what we're seeing uh, is that we can't just you can't take slavery and isolate it. I mean, that's part of the part of the clarity of what the past twenty or thirty years of scholarship have shown us that that's what the that's what the re- the revisiting the question of the history of slavery and capitalism is showing us, which is to say that slavery is embedded in the origins of the West, right? And therefore all of the practices, the, 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 the the ways of thinking that we think of as somehow connected to the idea of the West, whether that's possessive individualism or ideas of democracy or ideas of, um, Capitalist economy or imperialism, et cetera, all of these things um, are are interwoven with the history of Black people, um, and therefore, we now need to go back and ask ourselves, what is it? You know, what where do we where do we put enslaved men and women in these larger processes because they were there and they shaped it, um, and they they were. Uh, for the slave owner, the capacity to imagine himself in possession of other human beings is a crucial part of his capacity to imagine himself as accumulating land and accumulating wealth. Like we can't disentangle these things. So I think that there's still an enormous amount of work to be done on the ways in which slavery intersects with um, with specific industry uh, and the development of specific aspects of capitalism um, to the ways that slavery intersects with the history of medicine, with the history of science, the history of navigation and inoculation and, you know, many other ways that, uh, we understand the kind of rationality of, um, of, of, of knowledge and of knowledge formation. So, um, yeah, I think, and, and you asked whether they're, what are, I see these trends as momentary or lasting. Um, and I think the ways there are certain texts that people are going back to right now, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Eric Williams' "Capitalism and Slavery" is one of those texts. Um, obviously, Cedric Robinson's "Black Marxism" that's another one of those texts. And I see, I mean, that those works, uh, Walter Rodney's work. I mean, these are these are early texts that say you cannot tell the history of the West without telling the history of Black people. Um, Peter Wood said that too in in "Black Majority," right? Uh-huh. And At the time, those works were not, you know what I mean? Like they were, they were seen as, uh, I think, kind of in the, to put the best possible fringe on them, spin on them. They were seen as kind of the, you know, associated with the, with the far left with Marxism et cetera, and and we're seen as you know uh, political in that way but I think right. that what we now understand is that those the those big questions the big questions about the impact of slavery as an institution as an economic formation on uh, the history of democracy for example these are these are lasting questions I don't think that these are trends I think that we're seeing the those sort of um, We're seeing the fruition of some of that early, early work in the work of scholars, younger scholars like yourself.
1: Hey, I'll take that. And, uh, you know, shout out to Leeks, you know, that, that's, that's a, that's a friend, you know, she's, mm-hmm. she's doing some amazing work. And so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's always good to see the community that's, uh, that's being yeah, built. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I, I actually met a number of, uh, of, I guess it would be some of your graduate students at, mm-hmm. um, at Oswald, uh, back yeah. in, uh, I guess, November. Um, mm-hmm. uh, a, 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 a great group, a great group of folks. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so.
0: I, I totally, you know, I'm always trying to rush out to get ahead of them because they're so smart and they're so they're so leading the, the charge. So I'm very lucky um, to have good students who, who um, I've had the pleasure to work with.
1: Absolutely. And, um, and also, I think it gets to an interesting uh, question just about, mm-hmm. right, and, and I didn't write this one down, but this is just one that came to, to mind, just, mm-hmm. you know, what it means to be black as a, as a black person writing in early, uh, early American history. Um, mm-hmm. Because, uh, let's be honest, right? It's not, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you look to your left, you look to your right, you <laughs> know, you look at the neighbor and it's like, uh you know, yeah. it, it ain't, you know, it, it ain't where yeah. it needs to be, <laughs> to, no, to, to say the least, right?
0: Not. Well, I would say part of, so part of my, what I've always tried to do is to mentor students who are interested in working in the period prior to the 19th century, right? Like I really want there to be more black historians who are working on the 18th and the 17th and God help us the 16th century. There are so many interesting and important questions to be asked there. And I just feel like part of my job as a, as a professor, as a teacher, as a mentor is to support, um, the, the, the work of younger scholars of color to go back into the early American and the, what we call now vast early America, like there needs, there needs to be more scholars of color who are, who are asking questions in that field, because part of what, I mean, if I can circle back for just a minute, part of what I did in laboring women, I mean, let's be really clear here. There was not a single piece of evidence in that entire book that was new that I found and that nobody had found before. Every single thing that I looked at, some other but body, some other eyes had already looked at it, right? That's that's just how it is. But I was the person who looked at, you know, descriptions of African women's breasts dragging on the ground. And I was like, wait a minute, what the hell does that mean? What is what does that mean? And that's that gesture that comes from my identity as an African-American woman. I'm like, how can you describe people's bodies like that? That's not true. So, so what work is it doing? And it's, so, it's just about. So there is there's a very strong argument to be made that the that we carry our own identities and our own locations into the archive. That you know that doesn't mean that all history is you know completely subjective or whatever. I'm just saying that you need to you need to be attentive to the questions that are interesting to you and to the things that don't make sense to you. The thing that made sense to some random historian 50 years ago, and he just wrote it down as though it wasn't even an issue. Like you look at it and you say, hold on a second. What is this guy saying? And then you ask different questions and that produces new work. And that's why there needs to be, we need a diversity of historians, a a diversity of eyes, a diversity of scholars in the archive, because otherwise we're not asking the interesting questions. And in fact, the crucial questions.
1: And the profession suffers as a result, uh, I, I will say. Absolutely. Right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and you know that's why I'm you know glad to have worked with you the last year, uh, mm-hmm. working uh, with the yeah. OI um, yeah, to absolutely. to see you know what what we can do and um, yep. you know and, and and you know initiatives and such and yep. so we see folks like uh, what Dr Herman Bennett has done right mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. <laughs> through CUNY um, mm-hmm. and what what's going on down at the yep. uh, Library Company of Philadelphia's yep. Af- program in oh, African American history. Shout out to you, Dr Dunbar, and now uh, exactly. Dr Deja Cooper wins uh, is
0: leading that charge exactly Um, i mean you know it's so easy for um institutions to moan and groan about the problem of the pipeline right we've all heard it like well of course we would hire a scholar of color but there's no pipeline and in fact there are pipelines and those of us who are in the trenches are trenches are 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 overwhelmed by how much amazing good work there is, uh, in our undergraduates and our graduate students. Um, and we just need the institutional support to kind of create opportunities for, uh, for the recruitment and the retention of, of all of this excellent intellectual and political work, you know? So yes, that's, that's what we need to be doing.
1: Most definitely. And, you know, so, so, so before we uh, wrap up um, a couple more questions, couple more questions, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, life as a scholar of slavery, you know, it's, it's a tough thing, right. And uh, you're, you've been, you've been doing the work for, for, for a very long time. Um, Do you have any practices or advice to offer graduate students Uh, in early career scholars like myself about how to keep going during those inevitably rough patches in, you know, places when we're writing our dissertation or we are, you know, trying to really get into the weeds of our work, right. From your own experiences, what advice can you provide to the listening audience? Mm, You
0: know, I, uh, I, it's hard to say this without uh, without sounding like I'm being um, flip, but I'm not. But you know, you gotta find places of self care and pleasure. You know, you've got to find community. You've got to find things. Oh, you've got to find things that you do that have a start and a finish (laughs) as Mm. opposed to like the never ending. I mean, everyone who sees me at a conference knows that I usually have some knitting in my hands, which by the way, was a lesson I learned from none other than the great Nell Irvin painter who would knit in the front row of whatever talk she was at. Um, And I, knitting to me, which is something that I've done since I was a child is about it's about the tangibility. It's about creating something that's tangible, but that has a start and an end. Like I finish it and I finish a sweater, I finish a scarf. It sounds silly, but it's like, you know, when you're working on these long, never ending problems, you need to have something that brings you closure. So I know a lot of historians um, who are like amazing cooks or, you know, crafters in some other way, because they need another kind of a project. And I think that for those of us who are, you know, as Ashley Farmer said, archiving while black, like we need, we need a place where we can say, okay, I've done that. (laughs) Like I haven't, Mm -hmm. there's an end to this project. I think you have to, you, you have to find, and, and much of what we've been talking about today has been the processes of finding community, intellectual community, but, you know, I, like Stephanie Camp was my friend. Like we laughed together, right? And Marisa Fuentes is my friend. Like w- these these scholars who I'm in conversation with, um, you know Vince Brown or Alex Bird or Stephanie Smallwood. Like these are friends. And Herman Bennett is my husband, right? Like these are places of connection that start as intellectual places, but that become places of of really um, emotional. Uh, support and pleasure and you gotta you gotta honor those when you come to them because they're really important they're really really important the people who you go to graduate school with the people who you are who you are working alongside um you know but not everybody is your friend but like you can find these really important and long enduring connections there and those are important as well as the knitting
1: <laughs> got to go back to the knitting is very important very good <laughs> <laughs> right, so so look. If 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 no one else learned anything today, they know that if you find Doctor if you find Doctor Morgan anywhere around an academic conference, you yeah. you know you're gonna find some knitting around. Some knitting. Right? That,
0: yeah, it's
1: gonna very be in my bag. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. So, 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 you know, looking, looking forward, right, right. Mm -hmm. You you had mentioned early on about the about a new project, right. So, -hmm. what's next for you, Doctor Morgan? All right, I -hmm. I listened to a lecture you gave recently at Mm -hmm. Ohio State University, Mm -hmm. uh, and Mm -hmm. and you mentioned a new project, right. And so, with that, um, do you mind letting us know a bit about this new project or anything else you have in the works?
0: Sure. So um, I'm very happy (laughs) to say that the book is now um, in production with Duke University Press. Uh, It's called Reckoning with Slavery, Gender, Kinship and Capitalism in the Early Black Atlantic. Um, And it's a study that started out with a question I had about um, the nature of numerical evidence in the archive. Um, I, I was sort of mulling over the transatlantic slave trade database, what we know and what we don't know about that evidence. Um, I was thinking about the place of demographic evidence for the social historian. You know, you the first thing you do is you count the people who were there. But what if the whole process of counting is so embedded in the history of the institution you're trying to track, uh, that the very numbers that you're you're mobilizing are maybe fantastical. I don't know. Um, so I was thinking about slavery and numeracy in the English Atlantic world, um, which led me into a project that's really, I think also become, uh, very much in conversation with, uh, these new histories of slavery and capitalism. Um, it's, it's a quest, it's a, it's a project on gender and uh, race and knowledge formation. Um, and I'm very excited to finally be able to say that it's in process. Uh, I think it's a spring 2021 book. That's the, that's what I've been told. Um, Okay. Um, and then the other thing that I've been thinking about subsequently is the history of the idea of privacy and the, and the domestic, the public private split, which is such a, sort of foundational 19th century women's historian question, but I actually would like to think about that in um, the 17th and the 18th century uh, as, as, as a, as a project related to my interest in the history of slavery. So that how does, how to, how does the presence of slave labor kind of create domestic space for, uh, for whiteness um, for both slave owners, but also for those who aspire to be slave owners. Uh, So that's, that's, that's the very kind of, um, skeletal (laughs) thoughts about Mm -hmm. the next project. Yeah.
1: Good, good. Ooh. Ooh. So we're going to have to get you back on next spring (laughs) in a a Rona in in hopefully a Rona free world. Right. (laughs)
0: Oh, Oh, from your lips.
1: (laughs) There we go. There we go. Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. So, right. So final question, final question. Uh, Inhale, breathe. We're good. Final question. In closing, if you can time travel and give 2004 Dr. Morrigan up to three pieces, up to three pieces of advice with the knowledge you now have, what would you tell her?
0: Mm. Okay, so I would tell her to remember that this is a very, very long game. And that the, the project that you're interested in as a graduate student, um, the project that you, that you've just finished, if we're talking about 2004, um, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, <sighs> that being a historian is about thinking about something for a very long time and to not allow myself to feel, you know, freaked out about that to give myself that space. So that would be the first thing to remember that the clock is moving very slowly. Um, But the other thing is to just reiterate something that I've said, I think, since your first question asking me about what it meant to be at Duke at that moment when I started graduate school in 1988. And that is to hold so tightly to value the 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 people who you encounter along the way. I mean, I think I knew that on some sort of gut level, I've lived that. Um, But to just be like, yeah, this is what I'm doing here. I'm I'm engaged in a political project, I'm engaged in an intellectual project, and I'm engaged in a project that's about my community. And that's about the community in which I live. And it's also about the community that I create as a scholar, um, and as a professor, and as a researcher. Um, and to just really, really value that and to never feel like time nurturing your community is time wasted. It's not, it never is. Um, and, and that I think is a really important lesson, especially, especially in these days when we see how, um, you know, we're living in this moment of incredible precarity in which the, you know, the the the, the pandemic has just amplified the injustices that we all are so aware of. Um, and as we're trying to figure out how to respond to that, you know, what are we going to do about what we have always known to be the case? What are we going to do? Um, I think we need to remember to to take care of ourselves and to do that work in community like with our people whoever our people are
1: amen amen Mm -hmm. well dr morgan oh my gosh I, i like i'm like wow this this is it like i'm so happy we had the opportunity to discuss so much, right? 16 questions, my word. Right. We actually mm-hmm. got through them all. I was I was like, oh, I don't know how we're gonna get through them, but thank God we did, right? Mm-hmm. And and I really think that this conversation will help so many graduate students like myself, early career scholars, and shoot, some some of the some of the seasoned saints in the game like yourself as well. <laughs> and so I am just really happy to to have had this opportunity to, to discuss, right, what, what I will really call a new books in African-American studies oral history of laboring women. Right. And also, you might not know this, but you're the first person who I've actually done this with. Right. Oh. And do you want to know when this actual idea came up? You actually I don't know what if you remember it? this. Tell me. 2018. Your former Mm -hmm. student, Dr. Laura Hilton, invited you to Mm -hmm. University of Delaware's Black Arc. It was her class that she did, uh, the Black Atlantic in the Archive. Yeah, exactly. And it was from that um, discussion I I had with you at the end where, right, she had the syllabus and the common wind was at the very end of it. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to to do, right, this interview. And so not even two years later... I, mm-hmm. I know who Dr. Scott is. He knows me. Marcus mm-hmm. Rediker. Right. We have mm-hmm. Vince Brown, mm-hmm. Julia Gaffield and yourself. And it's mm-hmm. like that little seed that, that we dropped in this kind of conversation mm. in passing has now brought us here. July 2nd of 2020. Oh, what a life we live.
0: That's a wonderful thing. I love I love also that that idea came to you in a class that I was invited to by one of my former students. Um, you know, it's just we're we're traveling in these wonderful concentric circles, and that makes me happy too.
1: <laughs> me too. me too. Well, Excellent. y'all, it has been an amazing opportunity that I've had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Jennifer Morgan author of laboring women published in 2004 by the university of pennsylvania press and y'all if y'all love these conversations as much as i do and probably dr morgan please subscribe to new books in african-american studies wherever you get your podcasts please rate us and review us so we know how we're doing and please, please, please hit that subscribe button so that we can amplify the amazing stories of folks like Dr. Morgan and the rest of her colleagues and the rest of my colleagues as well, because, you know, we family out here in these academic absolutely, streets.
0: Absolutely, right? Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: Great, great. And so reporting live from New Brunswick, New Jersey, your host, Adam McNeil of New Books and African-American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network, over and out.